Greetings and salutations across the world. My name is Danny Fontaine and this is Pitch Masters. And if you don't mind, I want to take a moment to thank all of the listeners that have been tuning in from the UK, United States, India, Netherlands, Sweden, Belgium, Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, Spain, Morocco, Denmark, Greece, Austria, Ukraine, Italy, South Africa, Ireland, Portugal, Norway, Faroe Islands, Canada, Guatemala, Macedonia, Japan, Romania, Mexico, Malaysia, France, Brazil, Bulgaria, United Arab Emirates, Costa Rica, Rica, Finland, Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, Puerto Rico, Slovenia and Taiwan. The support I've received is incredible and you all mean the world to me and so thank you. Subscribe and stick with me because things are only getting better. This week I interview the one, the only, Doug Hall, master inventor, best-selling author and TV personality. Let's do this. Doug Hall, what an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I am a huge fan of yours, but for those people who might not know who you are, give yourself a little introduction. Well, I'm a chemical engineer by education, an entrepreneur for since the age of 12, uh, which is was like over 50 years ago. Um, <laughs> so... And then I, but then of all things, I went directly into marketing at Procter and Gamble, and um, led went up through the ranks, as they say, in brand management. Became master marketing inventor and led the P and G invention team, um, where we put nine products in the market in twelve months with a team of four. And it was not because we were smarter, but it's because we approached innovations and new ideas as a system of interconnected parts is what we did. And so after 10 years, I retired to form what's called the Eureka Ranch, which has been going since then, which invents for basically every major company that you can think of we've worked with, um, helping them grow their business. In addition, over the last number of years, we've created a new curriculum called Innovation Engineering, which teaches people how to invent ideas and and as well, and as you, you would say, to pitch the ideas because it's not enough to have them. Right. If you don't pitch them and get others to join your cause, it doesn't do you any good. Um, and then about a half dozen years ago, one of those inventions got out of control. And next thing you know, I was <laughs> running a whiskey company, which has now become quite large, um, making uh, bourbon, obviously, because here in the States but as well as single malt, rye, and, and wheat whiskeys as well. And, and what exactly was the invention around the whiskey then? Well, the, the premise was, so I was a chemical engineer who'd worked in a pulp mill for just one summer. And I learned from my good friends at the Macallan, who I've worked with for 23, 24 years now, um, that some 70% of the flavor of whiskey comes from the wood. Right. It's not the distilling, it's not the grain, it's the interaction of the alcohol and the wood. And I realized that was basically paper making backwards. Right. Because when you make paper, you use heat and pressure to get the lignans out so you can make papers with the cellulose. In the case of whiskey, as it gets warm, the whiskey goes into the wood. As it gets cool, the whiskey comes out of the wood, taking the lignans and setting off the chemical reaction, creating what we call 
in Scotland, at least, the water of life. Right. And uh, so I said, how hard can it be? And so we created a woodcraft finishing process that is especially set up for, in in the States, they call them ultra premium and luxury whiskeys. This is our specialty, sort of the higher end stuff. Wow, that's fantastic. So how many things do you reckon you've invented? Oh, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I know I've written and quantitatively tested over 20,000 of them. Wow. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's just, you know, if you, if you don't like the ideas you got here, I'll get you 50 more. You right. know, it's, uh, it's something that is, it's just part of my life is, is creating ideas. So let's jump right into that. I've read your book, Jumpstart Your Brain. It's full of tips and techniques and hands-on almost instructions of how we can better come up with ideas but how did you first get into this kind of ideas system innovation systems did you stumble across it how did it actually come about I mean since 12 I've been making products and selling them Um, and so I had just found a way to create Mm. you know through, you know, things not working and then things working and continuous experimenting. And after I had Eureka Ranch, where clients would, would pay to come and we'd work with them to invent ideas, I said, you know, this is not random. There are principles to this. And so what I did is I set off to use when the Nike company or American Express or whoever it might be was coming to our Eureka Ranch. And I turned them basically into a giant laboratory. Right. And um, fortunately, when you're at a big company and you're charged with coming up with ideas and you're working with a vendor such as us, you tend to do what we say. So I told them they had to answer a series of questions, which eventually grew to some 200 questions. And if they didn't, they could mess up the project. Right. So in typical corporate fashion, they always answered the questions. Right. And so here I had all of this data on them and their personalities. And then every 40 minutes over three days, we would measure and quantify what had been created or not created. And we compared groups. And at its high point, I had three statisticians working on this. And we kept discerning and looking for more and more to find out what were the things that resulted in more meaningful, meaningfully unique ideas. In other words, ideas that truly had a value that were worth spending some more time on. And we found there were three things. Now, interestingly, in Jumpstart Your Brain, the first edition, I made a mistake. I called it wrong. And so there's actually, Jumpstart Your Brain has a version 2.0 where I corrected that mistake. But we found there were three things that when people had them, they created more ideas. And the first was stimulus, basically ideas of feats of association. Take two or more unrelated ideas, bring them together, and you, you create a new idea. And and when we gave people stimulus, they created more, um, as opposed to what, what I would call the brain drain or the suck method of creativity, which is just <laughs> sucking ideas out of your head, obviously. And so there was clearly a method. And so we started to do some research on that. And in time, we would find there was lots of types of stimulus. There was market stimulus, uh, insight stimulus, um, patent mining, market mining. I mean, there's this a range of very specific things that we knew could be effective. And then it took us a while to figure this out because at first we made a mistake. We thought it was additive mm. and we found out and corrected it and found out it was actually exponential when we actually modeled 
the thing. And the second thing was diversity. So in a simple way of thinking about it is, if I've got this piece of stimulus and I've got a challenge, and I'm trying to connect this stimulus to this challenge, if I have different people looking at it who look at it from a different perspective mm. because of their life experiences, their demographics, whatever it is, who are just different, um, you would get exponentially more ideas because each person would interpret that stimulus relative to the challenge in a totally different way. Okay. And, and so I corrected that. And then the other thing that I thought, I thought in the first edition that fun was key. Right. And, and it is, but it's not the real root issue. Fun is a, um, a method for overcoming the real issue, which is fear. Right. So if I take and bring in stimulus, I bring in diversity, I get the people working together, I get an explosion of ideas, but that's divided by the level of fear. As the fear goes up, the number of ideas goes down. Right. We could literally track, if say we had six groups working on ideas, and say there was a negative person, whatever way you want to say it. Sure. Somebody who just was the wet blanket, who just has to kill all ideas. We, we would, it was amazing that we could see when we would look at each 40 minutes of groups and we would look at the output of the groups, we would joke that we could tell where that person was. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Because, because they, they, would, they would destroy ideas. And in fact, I got such that <coughs> I would work with, like, sometimes a leader, whether it was the CEO or vice president, division manager, whatever it is, and they would be apprehensive about coming. And so I would coach them. So, because once we learned these things, we then created treatments so to prevent it and to make it the group more functional. And we became massively, literally to the point where Andy Van Gundy, Dr. Van Gundy, University of Oklahoma, found that with this approach, following stimulus diversity, driving out fear, you could get not 5%, not 10%, but over 500%, 5x more wow. useful innovations. So these are things that are unique and valuable. Um, but I would tell the leader, I would say, you know, as they're going into a group, I'd say, the first thing I want you to do is to just listen. Don't say anything. So the big boss comes into the room with people of all different levels of the organization. They're a bit nervous that he, he or she is going to be either is there. And and I'd say the person afterwards, in between, as we're going to the next group, I'd say, what do you think? Say, well, the ideas were very, very good. Mm. They didn't seem very unique. I said, okay, now in the next group, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say the dumbest idea you can possibly think of. <laughs> now, sometimes they would say, I don't understand what you mean. So I would give them some examples of really stupid ideas. And, and I'd say, I want you to say the stupid ideas and then be, be quiet and listen. Sure enough, they'd go in, they'd say something stupid. Everybody would laugh. I get with the leader afterwards. I said, well, my God, you wouldn't believe how many more ideas there were. Wow. And they were really interesting. Right. I, he said, how, what happened? I said, <laughs> well, the people in the group are worried about what you think. Right. And when you say something really stupid, they're able to verbalize because they're thinking in the back of their head, they're saying, well, at least it isn't as dumb as what he just said. Right. Right. <laughs> so you've opened up and reduced the fear. In that act, you've reduced the fear and allowed them to give voice to their thoughts. 
So that's what my life's been about. Finding the systems, finding the methods to make the creation of ideas reliable and reproducible, and not just core ideas close in, but those sort of leap transformational ideas right. that make a big difference. So we'll get into more of that process in a moment. But first, tell me, if you will, a little bit more about Eureka Ranch, because it just sounds like the most incredible place on the planet. Um, well, it's, I live actually next door in an old historic home. Um, and the ranch is beside us here. We're on about 80 acres on a private lake. Um, and uh, I don't know. It is pretty cool. I mean, it, it's a custom-built place. Um, literally built to open people's minds up. Um, I've been blessed with having been to many, many Disney facilities around the world and, and, and creative facilities all over the world. And I was able to have a blank canvas and to be able to create this amazing place um, filled with, as you'd expect, original artwork and, mm -hmm. and things. And, and it's really, it's, it's sort of a place where you can escape mm. the mind and we will do, generally people will come to us for when they need a really big idea. I mean, and, and to give you an example, a lot of people do creativity and it's all good. We need more of it, not less. So there's no, no complaints. But the part we specialize that I don't know of anybody else that really does um, is patentable inventions where we're thinking about Think of this as simultaneously, we're thinking about the marketing, we're thinking about the cost and the finance, we're thinking about technology, and we're thinking about manufacturing. I mean, when you play with those spinning plates, if you would, and try to get them all to work together, that's when you come up with the things like, you know, our whiskey business, we've got a, we've got the fastest growing super premium bourbon in America right now. Wow. And we sell custom bourbon where you can answer 13 questions on an artificial intelligence app and we create a custom bottle to your taste in about 30 seconds. Wow. Now that's waxed, right? Yeah. That's waxed. <laughs> but with all of the things that were put together, we can do that very profitably. The consumer's got a wow. We, as the manufacturer, have a wow from our side. But it, the challenge we have is we tend to get people together, just the marketing people or just the technology people, or just the packaging people, or the part that really drives me crazy is corporations send token technology person to the meeting, right. a token finance person, not like a real person who actually can make decisions and really knows the stuff because they are being polite about it. But when you get a team where you really work, and so we've got engineers, we've got statisticians, uh, we've got chefs. I mean, we, we have a very eclectic collection of people. And so what companies know is with us, we'll not only come up with the big idea, but we'll, it will also have, it'll be, have been vetted through what we would call the death threats, the kinds of things that could kill it. We've worked through the major death threats, um, which can be very hard in a corporation that is set up in silos. Can you tell me about a few of the big ideas that have come out of Eureka Ranch? Well, well, one that just comes to mind because I just flew in very late last night is the American Express company came a number of years ago and they said to us that they wanted to charge at that time 
$2,000 for a charge card. Now, this isn't even a credit card. This wow. is a card you have to pay back each month. Okay. And they want to charge $2,000. And I started, and Peggy Dyer called, <laughs> and I started laughing. You know, I'm like going, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure, you're going to do that. They said, no, no, we're serious. That's why we're coming to you. Figure out how to make it worth a lot more than that um, to them. And, uh, and so they came and we created ideas and we fell into some tr angles that worked. One of which was, obviously, these are people with more money than cents. And, and so these would have to be people that are wealthy. So what do you give a person who can buy anything they want? Yeah. And one of the things that we came up with was access to things that you can't get any other way. Mm. Access to things you can't get any other way. And so we found out ways and smart systems to anticipate problems before people even knew they existed. And there's a range of different things. A service where you don't have to hit buttons when you call, you just dial and it automatically goes to your team to take care of you um, and do it. And and so interesting. So they said, oh, these ideas are great. They took them back. And then I get a call back from New York and they say, we got a little problem. I said, what's that? They said, our team is looking at these ideas and saying they can't do them. Could we bring our team from, from Arizona that does service delivery to invent how we're going to do these? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So they came and we did that and we figured out systems for them and put together things. And the thing has been a huge success. It's now $5,000 for a card. Wow. And, and, and they've got things like a special program where um, I got to see uh, my wife and I went to see Yo-Yo Ma did three 90 minute sessions in a day. The first one was just talking about creativity. Yeah. And the second one, he was talking about different styles of music. And the third was more of a performance with 40 people. Nice. Okay. And that is the quintessential of Amex Centurion. Um, but again, it's that doing not only the idea, but how you're going to deliver on it. Too many times we create ideas and then we throw them over the fence and say, you know, product department, programming department, whatever it is, figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's not fair. Okay. You know, it, so if you don't think, if you think that's fair, then I tell you what, I'm going to come up with a technology and you figure out how to sell it. Right. Well, I said, well, that's no good. How do I know there's a need? Yeah. Well, how do they know they can make it? You could be breaking the laws of physics. Yeah. And, and so that was always one of those interesting things. And to their credit, um, they, instead of, they ha could have had a choice. They could have compromised on the ideas and made them worthless. But the leadership said, no, we have to push through. And if, if I've learned anything over the last 50 years is how sad it is when a great idea has come up with and it runs into death threats and obstacles and people compromise on it rather than pushing through. Yeah. And, and soon they're working on a project that they just don't give a damn about. Right. It's lost all and of its magic sparkle. The whole excitement is gone and anybody can come up with an idea that's infeasible. The real geniuses can not only come up with the idea, but can invent a way to do it. So talk me, talk me through the process a little bit. Let's imagine, um, well, I work for IBM. Let's imagine IBM say, boy, oh boy, we need an idea. And we put the right team together for you with the different disciplines and everyone's keen on it. And they arrive in Arizona at the ranch. How long are we there for? 
festival? Well, it, the ranch is actually in Cincinnati. Okay. So so we're, we're in Cincinnati. Um, prior to coming, we would do a couple of things. We call it immersion. And again, think of it, think of the model as taking your head as a mental food processor and putting stimulus into it, mm. feeding it into your head. And so what we will do is quantitative and qualitative. We would take the team members and we would run a culture survey on them to understand their confidence, their mindset, their thinking style. And interestingly, the data is, while in collective we'll share it, the individual data is there's only two people on my team that can access it. And if they give it up, they're fired. Right. So it's truly, truly 100% confidential. Yeah. And and we do this not to be mean and not to point fingers because we know how crappy the corporate world is today. I'm just, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it's a tough world today. Right. Pre-COVID, it was a disaster and it's really a disaster now. I mean, yeah. we don't even know where the hell we're going now. But by getting their mindset, a way I think of it is, you know, if you had a football team, it's the scouting report before the game. Yeah. So that you know what you're working with. Only rather than trying to beat them, we're trying to amplify them. We're trying to understand their psychology. So, for example, if a team that's coming is very, um, they don't have a lot of confidence. Yeah. In their ability to take action on big ideas. And fear is indexing really high. Then what you can't do is go in and say, come on, think big, think big, think big. Yeah. Because all you're doing is amplifying their discomfort and their pain. Yeah. You're making the situation worse. So what you have to do is to be more supportive of them and encourage them. And I will tell my team, I want you to just be on turbocharge for the first two hours. Right. Just And when they're sitting there and they're trying to decide, am I going to commit or not? You know how it is where you can go to a meeting and you can just kind of be in the meeting, but not really in the meeting? Mm-hmm. I said, we're going to have to demonstrate that they can think of things. And the minute they say something, spin off it and come up with something bigger. And then reinforce. That was good. That was good. It's like kids. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to build back their confidence. They can do it. They're good people. And if you have to believe that everybody inside them wants to do meaningful stuff. Everybody yeah. does. Yeah. But if you'd have lived under the torture and the tyranny that these people are under, you'd be that way too. So our job is to get them to believe again. And generally after about three or four hours, they start to open up and they start to do it. And, I, and my team then is told, okay, now turn it down and let them celebrate. Right. And the next thing you know, they're believing now to the point where they'll they'll be here generally for three days um but and so we'll have done the survey to understand it the other thing we'll have done is a lot of stimulus mining we'll have searched for trends we'll have searched for future mining we'll have taken their customers and done a problem survey yeah um to to understand what are big problems what are frequent problems we tend to only work on big ones but oftentimes little things that happen regularly can be pretty powerful too and so we have all this wealth of information that we package in something we call spark decks and and three-dimensional experiences so that the person is just immersed in a pile of stimulus and then 30 to 40 minutes later, we take them to another world and they're thinking in a different way. 
to the point where by the end of the day, they've come up with four or 500 raw ideas and they're exhausted because they haven't thought this hard. Because in our today's world, as we go meeting to meeting, yeah, the time to think is microscopic. I mean, one survey at P&G that I led found that brand managers spent 2% of their time thinking, <laughs> which yeah. is a, a bit rough. Um, <laughs> and, and so they'll go through it. And then having had those ideas on the first day, we do a confront reality type event. And this is different because oftentimes when you're creating, it's it's a love fest. Oh, we're great, we're great, we're great, we're great. That doesn't do you any good because when they go home and they realize they're not great, it's not a good thing. <laughs> so we have confront reality situations where we take their raw ideas and we have built at the ranch some very fast and inexpensive quantitative testing systems in a multitude of, of formats. And so we will get quantitative data um, and then the next morning, you know, their ideas they had have gotten trashed and, you know, and unexpected ideas are looking good. And, and I usually sometimes for effect, I will take the ideas that may be written on some paper and I'll throw them. And then we have a giant stone, I don't know, it goes up almost three stories, fireplace. I'll throw them in the fireplace, which makes people go, whoa, <laughs> I don't know why. But, and I say, now that we've got that out of our way. Now let's do a next generation of ideas. Right. So rather than take those and incrementally build, you disconnect and I want you to start fresh and we start them to begin all over again. And most of the time we get an idea and we pound on it and it's not working. We know it's not working, but we can't let go. And part of inventing anything is the ability to know when to let go. Mm. And so we force them to let go. At noon, we have another confront reality. And like they, then they have to put together, and this is unique in this world, and, and some people you know, get frustrated with it. But the reality is, this is not, it's not just a right brain, you know, flights of fancy. Eventually, somebody's going to have to put real money on the table right. to do this thing. Yeah. Okay. And if you want to get the, I, I've jokingly called them RWA, real world adults, to <laughs> yeah. to check in, you got to talk the way real world adults talk. Yes. Okay. So what we will do in the second half of the second day and into the third and sometimes the fourth day is we then have them do the math on how much they're going to sell and how much they're going to make. Mm. Now, immediately people say, well, I can't do that. How can I do that? It's too early in the process. So I said, well, after you've shipped it, it's too late to do that information because you're, it's 100%. too soon. You yeah. know? So we use what's called Monte Carlo simulations where we model the uncertainty on all of the variables that make up sales and profits. Mm. And so we'll, we'll basically, we have a model, again, in our computer system that, clients use, um, the lab system, and we do 10,000 introductions of your new idea. Basically introduce it in the market 10,000 times and and start to model the sales and profits to it. Now, obviously, there's uncertainty in these, and some of the variables have higher uncertainty, and some of them have less uncertainty. We track that, and we mark them, and those that have high uncertainty we consider to be the biggest death threats. Mm. So what we do 
is on the third day and the fourth day, if we're doing it, is we'll take those things that have the biggest uncertainty and we'll run some experiments to reduce the uncertainty and to get it smaller. And so now I've given you control over this crazed idea to be able to turn it from a ridiculous idea to an idea that real world adults can understand. Mm. Okay. And so, and then what we do is we start to work through those death threats and the idea of pivots and changes as we adapt and do this stuff. And, and, and I'm not saying any, it's remarkable in the corporate world, but this is not at all remarkable in the entrepreneurial world. Right. Right. And I'm not talking about one-off entrepreneurs who got lucky once, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I'm talking about the people that have done it 20 times over and over again. The, the people that have really reproducibly done it, this is the approach that they do. They identify the things as the killer issue. They'll call it death threat. They'll call it different things. And they'll focus their energy on that because if I can't get that resolved, the idea is not worth doing. Mm. As opposed to the corporate world, which if I can't get that, I, that resolved, we just compromise on it. Right. And now the idea is still not worth doing. Right. We'll just spend a load of money and do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So all of that is just fascinating. I would love to be involved in some of that. But what about the people who um, don't have loads of money and they're not in a massive company and they're listening to this, they're thinking, boy, I wish I, I could do that. What can people like me do at home, perhaps, without spending budget to, to have some of the same kind of results that you might get through that process? Um, well, I mean, the, the principles, I just, I just told you the secret. Stimulus, diversity, and drive out fear. Right. Stimulus, go fill your brain. Yeah. S sit, on, sit on the Google and search. Go talk to people. Yeah. Get your brain filled up. Then talk with people. Get other people's perspective. Say, you know, there's this weird thing. What do you think of that? And then lastly, to drive out fear... Rather than saying no to an idea, run some experiments. Right. Try it. Try it. Stimulus, diversity, and drive out fear. That's it. That's how creativity happens. You know, the artist walks in the wood. They see the, the path diverge, and they get inspired to write poems. Robert Frost does. Mm. You know, that's how it happens, and you can do it. By the way, I've got a, I have a, a thing. Um, it's uh, the 15-minute rule. If we're sitting in a meeting and we're debating something and 15 minutes have gone by of highly intellectual debate, mm. I'm done. Right. We got to go. We got to know more by either learning some stimulus or we got to talk to somebody or we got to run an experiment. Right. More talking is not going to result in a smarter decision. It's going to result in a compromise decision or somebody muscling it out and the other person checking out. So I'm done. We got to know more. Yeah, and that makes and that comes back to your two percent of time spent thinking because the other ninety percent were in meetings talking and talking That's and right. talking. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't. Okay, so let's assume we've come up with a great idea. What can you tell me about pitching an idea? Is is a big idea enough on its own if it's world changing, or do we still have to think about how we convey that information? to an audience, I suppose, especially one who we want to invest in our ideas? There's two parts to that. There is the 
a structure for how you talk about it, but there's also some secrets that we found and that we have quantified that we know dramatically increase your odds. And this is content you put into that pitch format. Mm. So I'm going to do the pitch format first to give you the structure. And then I'll talk about some of the secrets of ways to turbocharge your pitch. Love it. Okay. So the first thing you have to do is at the end of the day, especially when your idea is really meaningfully unique, it's really something different. The challenge you've got is people will hear it and they go, what the hell are you talking about? Why are we even talking about this? <laughs> they don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. And a mistake that many, many people make is they go in to talk about this cool technology or this tool, cool customer opportunity they've got. And the listener doesn't even know why they're being bothered. Right. Where it's coming from. So the first step is summarize the situation. And what we're doing here is we're summarizing the frustration that customers have, the problem that they have, the basically the thing that your invention is going to solve. Because at the end of the day, it's problem solution. Mm. People don't buy ideas for just a whims on it. They buy it because they're bored. They buy it because their feet hurt. They buy it because they've got a problem. Right. And they're buying a solution to their problem. So we summarize the situation and then we overtly state what the idea is. So do your feet hurt? You know, you work all day. People at work in um, fast food joints, their feet hurt a lot. And, and so they've got a problem. So we've got an idea for a new type of flooring system that reduces their pain by 80%. Now, so I set up the problem. I got them in listening. I stated the idea. And at this point, it should be a little bit not believable. Okay. In fact, if it's totally believable, it's probably boring and not worth doing. All been done before, I guess. That's right. Yeah. And then the third step is you explain how it works. Okay. It works because we've got a unique flooring system that actually has air that comes up through it. And the air will actually create a turbulence so that it cools the feet as well as providing a softness to them as they're standing on it. Yeah. Okay. I'm just making. No, I like it. I think you've just invented something. And, and so summarize the situation. I got you to stop. I stated the idea. I said, really? That's pretty cool. How the hell are you going to do that? Well, let me explain how it works. Boom, boom, boom. Then the next step is reinforce the key benefits. And this is usually two or three. And generally one of them is the benefit for the customer. One is the benefit for the organization. And one is usually a longer term. This sets us up strategically for whatever, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. Now, and at this point, the person's like, well, that's pretty cool. But Jesus, that's amazing. How the hell are we going to do that? We don't know anything about airflow. We don't know anything about that. How are we going to do all that? Uh-huh. And so the last step is suggest an easy next step. Because if you've got an idea that is truly shocking to someone, truly shocking, when they stop for a minute, they go, nah, nah, this is going to be a big risk to me in my career. Yeah. I don't know that I want to go with this. And so what you want to do is to give them an easy next step, as in, here's a demo. So, for example, we do our own custom whiskey and we um, for, for people. 
And when I go out and we're working with people, say we're talking to somebody about an arrangement or a custom product for a celebrity or that kind of stuff, we have a kit that comes with us where without the fancy machines and that, we've got an analog way where the person, I can make their custom bourbon for them in about five minutes right in front of them. Mm. Okay. We got six different woodcraft finished whiskeys and we put them together and we show them how to do it. And, and they taste it and they go, oh my God, that's amazing. Mm. And, and so now the fact that what I promised you that your bourbon, your way, you could have your own custom bespoke bottle for $45, by the way. So it's still, it's not stupid pricing, right? but for, for the masses and I've got systems for doing it, that's all good. But then when you taste it, you go, Jesus, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, and I gave you an easy way to check it without having to try to do it because you've got to reduce the fear again. You know, it's stimulus response, drive out the fear. So that's the basic system. Summarize the situation, state the idea, explain how it works, reinforce the key benefits, and suggest an easy next step. That makes sense? Makes perfect sense. I wonder how important is it within that to try and create an emotional connection in what you're saying? Um, I, I, I heard one of your podcasts about the emotional dimension and 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 there is but a lot of the emotion that we're dealing with and 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 i would rephrase that a little bit having a whole brain approach to it Mm. so it's not or it's and right right okay if you go into a senior executive at ibm and paint them an emotional picture good luck to you yeah Ah, you know IBM, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen, okay? And But at the same time, if you give them a balance of a left-brain logical presentation mm. as well as emotion, mm. then now you've got a whole brain and now you're approaching it. Now, in those emotions, what we miss, because I believe the person that you're interviewing is absolutely right about the emotions. Mm. But the emotions in a corporate setting are the emotions of their fear of what's it going to do to their career. Yeah. Okay. Or they're so distant from the end customer, they can't feel the customer's pain. Yeah, that is very true. Most of our clients, they want to be convinced not of a great idea, but convinced that if they give us the money, we won't screw it up to the point where they're going to get fired. That's it. Exactly. In a nutshell, I think. See, and so those are the emotions. Those are the emotions in this situation. Okay. And, and so that's why in the format that I'm doing with the easy next step, I'm going to do it. And then that's what leads me to also some of my other tricks to get them to buy in. Mm. Okay. Among those tricks are quantification. Right. Because it's one thing for me to say it will be better for people. Mm. It's another thing to me saying they're going to be able to stand 50% longer without fatigue. Because that makes, wow, that opens me up more. So quantifying benefits. So one of our experiments that we run is, does this idea, is it just it's better, whatever the hell better means? Or is it a wow? And so if you can quantify, that helps. It also helps when people have to put a big check on the table is that you've got the potential for a patent. 
Yes. And I know that's outside of the scope of most people, but it's something that we teach and that we focus on, even if people don't want a patent. A patent are only given to people who are doing an idea that is non-obvious to somebody with ordinary skill. Yes. Said another way, if the idea is obvious to people with ordinary skill, what the hell kind of in innovation is it? Right, exactly. Yeah. It's not much. Yeah. So, so we really push that. But when they can own the innovation, then that reduces the risk and the fear that they feel that if they spend this, are they going to get anything back on it? Do you think that's enough alone to build trust with the prospects? Now, trust is built in small pieces. It's built in little tiny things. It's built in um, the integrity of your story, your empathy for their position they're in. I don't know how many times over the last many years clients have said, you're right, Doug, you're absolutely right, but let me tell you my reality. Mm -hmm. And it may be a person who is just in leadership who doesn't get it, who's more interested in what their bonus will be this holiday season than doing the right thing. It could be an acquisition that's about to happen that, that you I mean, there's all kinds of things that'll happen. So having empathy for them so they can understand it, bringing them numbers helps with it. Mm. Clarity on ideas um, we know that ideas that are written at a fifth grader or about a 11-year-old's level have a significantly higher chance of success than complicated ideas. Mm. So it's simple ideas said in simple ways. Mm. And as you probably know, I mean, my new book that I'm working on now on proactive problem solving I'm forcing myself to do it in, in 50,000 words. All of my other books are 120, oh, wow. 150. Yeah. And it is amazing how much harder it is to write 50,000 words than 150,000 yeah. words. Yeah. Because you've got to be precise with what you do. But every time you do that and the customer isn't confused because you've given them analogies, you've made it easy for them to understand, as opposed to making them feel stupid, which is a thing that people will do. Um, that helps build trust as well. And is part of what you do with some of your clients thinking of analogies and metaphors? Because that's something that I'm always interested in. Um, yeah, we have various methods that, that we will use, and some of them will literally do that. We have one we call takeover time. Hmm. We say, assume that Starbucks took over the company. What would they do if they stereotypically did it? Right. Yeah. Assume, assume that Madonna took over the company. What would she do? Yeah. And so people, places, things, and, and you, all you're doing is you're shocking the brain by getting them to look at it through the eyes. Now we're doing diversity. I'm forcing you to look at it through the eyes of someone else. Right. And what that does is it then jumps the tracks of your brain so that you see new thoughts that you wouldn't have seen before. And what about... The mechanisms of delivering a pitch. So let's say we're in a corporate world for the, for the sake of it. And everyone uses PowerPoint and, and, and all the rest of it. But you talk about when you're coming up with ideas, you talk about these incredible immersive experiences. 
do you encourage people to do more than a slideshow? Mixed feelings. Okay. And, and I think it actually depends on the situation. Right. There are the people are not, there's no solid rule here. I, most business people today, if you can't slim this down to a simple pitch, you got no chance. Right. Because they're not going to put up with it. Um, I hosted a show in Canada called Backyard Inventor, and 12 times the inventors pitched and 12 times the CEOs said yes. In fact, one CEO came in one time and he said, and they used the exact format I said, some situations state the idea, that's exactly how they, you know, the inventor wanted to come in and talk about the invention. I said, nobody gives a crap about your invention. You got to tell them what the problem is and what you can solve and how you Right. And, and we would drill them to get ready for it. Maggie Nichols and Maggie Pfeiffer and I. And so the CEO said, Doug, I'm, I'm not, I knew him pretty well. And he said, I'm not feeling very good today. I'm going to say no to you. I know you're on a streak, but I'm going to, I'm going to say no. I said, okay, that's fine. So of course, you know, the big scene in reality TV show, the person walks in, da da, the cameras, you know, the slow motion, you know, the stuff. That, the way yeah, they, yeah. You know, I can imagine it. <laughs> lots of quick cuts. Yeah. And uh, I said, so um, what's your, uh, what's your response? Are you a go or a no on this? He looked at me, he said, asshole, excuse me. <laughs> I said, the director says, that's a cut. <laughs> I said, let's do it again. Yeah. We go in and he says, he looked at me, just gave me an eye and he says, I'm going to have to say yes. Ah! I caught him. I said, what the hell's going on? He says, you jerk. You had them do that thingy you do. And I was going to look like a total embarrassment across the country <laughs> if I said no, because only an idiot would say no, because your pitch was so strong, I had to do it. Wow. Uh, and so there are times when that simple thing works. Mm. But there are also times when you're in a situation where the leaders are so far from the work. Mm. And we are a world where we have a lot of managers. I'm of the old fashioned who you come up and you know how the thing works. And I like to know how every part of it works. Right. I'll take, I'll take, a, if it's a, say, if it's a product, I'll take the product and look at the ingredient list. And I'll sit with the director of marketing. I'll say, why is this in the product? Why is this? I'll look at the ingredient statement. Right. Right. If they can't answer it, it pisses me off. Cause it's like, yeah. why the hell don't you know this stuff? Of course. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I'm that shopkeeper mentality, but we had a situation on a baking mix called Duncan Hines. And there was a, a, a a, a very smart executive vice president. And we were trying to do a very unique birthday cake, a very unique, cool technology, variable wall thicknesses. So even though they were in the shape of Kermit the Frog or, or you know, Garfield or different characters or sports stadiums, they yeah. would still cook like a round, even though they weren't round because we did variable wall thickness. Okay. And, and, um, and he just couldn't get why anybody would want a cake with, we would put cardboard eyes on the cake and, yeah. you know, colored frosting. He just couldn't understand why anybody in the world would want this. He just didn't understand it. Right. And I'm sitting there with Eric Schultz, who worked with me. He was a dear friend and just an amazing guy. And we're sitting there saying, why doesn't Jürgen get this? Everybody else gets this. Yeah. And then we realized Jürgen didn't have any kids. Okay, right. So in this case, because he couldn't see the idea through the eyes of the of the consumer, which in this case is the mom or the dad. Yeah. We brought him down to a conference room. We decorated up as a happy birthday party. Yeah. 
We had him sit down. We put a hat on him. <laughs> and we, and now I'm dating myself now. We had a Kodak, you know, Polaroid camera that we just shot. And we pulled out the picture of him with the cake. And we handed him the picture and he said, that's what mom's buying. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. that's what they're buying. And he's like, I get it. Go. That's powerful stuff. So it it's, you have to have respect that these are good people. It's so easy to say they're jerks. That That's not useful to me. No. Think, why? Do they not see it as you see it? Mm. And with so many people who are just professional managers who go from department to department, who don't have an understanding of what's going on in the real world. They've not spent the hours out there. They don't understand the pain. Yeah. When you're summarizing that situation, they can't get it. Yeah. Um, then you're going to have to make that come to life to them. Now, the other side of this is the world of theater and fancy pitches. Right. Um, and there are people that do that. I've never been of that camp. Yeah. The reason, the reason being is I find it has a short shelf life. Yes. I want to engage the right and the left brain because I need somebody that's going to become a warrior because whoever I'm pitching to is going to go in front of other people who are just like them. Right. And if I don't get them to have a, I can't coax them into it. They've got to, they got to want it. I can't sell it to them. Yes. They've got to believe in their hearts that this truly is amazing. And that's how... You know, the average home has 18 products and services on it that we've invented or reinvented. Wow. And the way you get to that is by getting that depth. Um, and it, it it really is psychology. I mean, yeah. in, in place of the world, emotion, I would say psychology. Um, because it really is. I got to write for one of the big uh, American Psychological Associations. They have a huge encyclopedia. And for the first time ever, they had a chapter on innovation that I wrote on the psychology of innovation. I told the professor who wanted me to write it, the editor, and I said, I don't know anything about this. He says, you know more about it than you think. Yeah. I've seen your sessions and your psychology is amazing. <laughs> he said, I'll give you the fancy terms. You just tell your story. Yeah. And so, and it was a fascinating, just fascinating. Then you would not believe how cool it was talking to this guy on psychology and explaining why I did things. And him said, well, that, that works because of this. Right. Which, I don't know, squat. But, you know, after you've been doing it for so many years, you either find a way to do it or you quit. Yeah. Um, and there really is a lot of psychology to getting someone to jump on an idea that is a real discontinuity, the kind of idea that you're really proud of yeah. having done. You know, that later on in life you go and you go, damn, that was wicked cool. Yeah. What what Do you have an idea that you've come up with that, that you look back on you think, that's still just one of my best ideas ever. Um, the, the two that come to mind, one is for the largest maker of, and I, I and I know this is not at all what you'd be expecting or doing, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm intrigued. It, it, the largest, Batesville, the largest manufacturer of caskets in wow. America. Wow. Wow. And they have challenges, and this was back a number of years ago, where casket sales were being challenged because people were moving towards more and more, and they still are, cremation. Right. 
And so we were teasing it apart and thinking about it, and we realized that with cremation, from the different types of urns to the different types of ceremonies, there was a lot more customization you could do through a cremation okay. than you can do with caskets. And in fact, the only time caskets really became interesting was when it would be a tragic, uh, oftentimes when a young person died, they would give a unfinished casket and allow all of their classmates in that to, to write on it. Oh, wow. That's moving just hearing that. And, and it would become something. So we put together a series of caskets. Um, one was the old Rugged Cross, a classic song, where it had a, a Rugged Cross at the top, but there was also a unique ceremony and music that came with it where you could build the whole ceremony around that. Okay. And we had a number of these where they were themed, um, and we did a lot of research on the ones that worked and the ones that didn't work. Um to the point where it added value and it allowed them to talk about more of an experiential, right. because let's face it, the funerals are for the living, not the dead. The dead are dead. And so how could you add more meaning to the ceremony coming out of the casket, which is one of the biggest expenses, obviously, associated with it and a traumatic experience. Um, and, and the, of course, the joke with this was they had a mortuary convention and they announced this. and They got a standing ovation at the mortuary convention, which wow. is a pretty amazing thing for a casket. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. I love it. Yeah. And then the other one that I, I just have to, the, thing, the coolest thing I've ever done is this custom whiskey, um, yeah. recreating the 1800s. And we've, we're franchising it now around the world where people can open their own Woodcraft custom bourbon franchise um, under their own local name. And Barrels of Billets down in Louisville, the thing just took off the minute we opened it up. And, uh, and the idea of enabling everybody to have their own personal bourbon um, and figure out the production so that you could do it at a reasonable price, not a crazy price. Right. Invent the equipment, invent the systems. And it is seriously cool. It is seriously cool. Where, where can we go online and, and find out more about this? Um, you can learn at brainbrewwhiskey.com. You can learn about the whiskey stuff that we do. And, of course, doughall.com has got my blog, and Eureka Ranch has Eureka Ranch. But all of them connect to each other, so you can find right, them all right. one to the other. All right, so back to your experience of pitches. You, you must have been on the receiving end of just innumerable pitches in your career do any stand out where you've been pitched to what was the best pitch that made you just think yes i want that so let's go to the um the tv shows i've done two shows one with peter jones american inventor and then another one backyard inventor right and then i also did a national radio show on it where probably over a thousand fifteen hundred people pitched things that did it and the things that would excite me was when I felt authenticity. Because here you're brought to a room and this thing just shows up and you don't know anything at all that's coming to you. And you could tell the difference when people were doing it because they wanted to make money or they thought it was, you know, make them famous or, you know, but when you could feel that it was a craftsperson, somebody who truly felt that this was an important problem to solve. 
yeah. and had thought deeply about it. Okay. And that may mean that their prototype is a bit ugly, but they figured out a way to make a functional prototype. Um, and you can just feel within them an authenticity that they can feel the pain. They know the pain and they're really trying to come up with a real solution, not just make a quick buck. Mm. Those are always the ones that attract me because when we find people that are like that, who truly are in it because this is something important that they feel to do. Yeah. It is cool stuff that matters. It is something that really matters. Those are the people you have to support. You have yeah. to support them. Yeah. You got to support them because, you know, they've, they are truly genuine there. The problem is, is that's maybe 10% of the people that you see. Right. 90% are on a get rich quick scheme or (laughs) they're just trying to sell something to, you know, I've got a call later today where the bigger issue with the, with the corporation is, can they do something quick to to make some more money this year for their bonus? And and I'm sorry, that's not a meaningful idea. Okay. I'm going to have a hard time with that. I'm just going to have a hard time with that because it's too hard Change and innovation takes so much energy. Yeah. If you don't love it, if you don't truly love it, then you're going to give up. Yeah. Because you're sane. And why would it? Why would you do something crazy? And I think that translates directly in the business world as well. I've seen many people selling a product that they they they're basically acting, uh, and it just shows immediately. And you just think, well, you might know all of the facts about that product, but I can tell you don't personally believe in it, which just makes me as an audience member not believe in it whatsoever as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And they can smell it. I, I say oftentimes when you pitch an idea, the first time, first thing, the client, this is a thought balloon above their head. Right. What the hell is this? And why should I be bothering? Okay. Now I got excited. Okay. Now I'm like, well, can we afford this? Can this be made to happen? Okay. Okay, I've ticked that box. Now the next one is, do I trust this person will stay with me through the good times and bad to help me make it happen? You know, is it worth doing? Can we make it financially work? And can I trust that you're going to be with me all the way through? I just did a call on Friday with a with a big company that's looking to do a big deal with us. And literally what I just said is what I did in that hour conversation. Do you have a worst pitch story? And I'm not talking about worst invention. I'm talking about pitch. Has anyone ever pitched you and you just think you have chosen the exact wrong way to do this? It's gone horribly wrong. There was a guy on American Inventor who came up and Peter was to my left. And uh, he had a way to make fiberglass that would be stronger okay and and so he could do it for vintage cars or something like that i may be remembering it incorrectly but it was uh, something in light line yeah and so he had the hood of a car and he's pitching it to us and and it doesn't seem like it's anything but he knows how to make hoods out of fiberglass okay it doesn't right. appear to be anything and it doesn't appear that there's any real benefits to this I mean, except for a few old vintage cars where you can't buy them anymore. It, yeah. it just didn't seem any. And he's got this car hood there that he's showing, and he's very impressed by it. 
And it may be wonderful, but he's not articulating it, and we're not getting it. So the next thing you know, he takes a baseball bat out, <laughs> and he starts beating the crap out of the, <laughs> the thing to show it's wrong. And then he comes over towards the table, and at this point, security comes in and grabs him. <laughs> oh, my God. Who I didn't even realize that uh, given that I would tell people sometimes it's just not going to work and they'd get mad. I didn't realize how good security was on the set, but it was really good. Right. They were there in instance and took it away. That was not a good way no. to get a good vote. I'm, I'm just saying. So you know. violence in a pitch is not recommended. Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> so I just have a couple more questions. One, one I'm curious. I've done bit of reading online. I'm really into psychology as well. And I've looked into how people in the past, you know, Edison and Dali have come up with ideas. And and there's there's quite a few studies on more experimental methods to tap into your subconscious. I wonder if you've ever come across or even tried anything like that before. Yeah. In my new book, one of the, I've got, I call them the eight great, the eight most reliable methods that if a gun's held to my head, and I have to come up with an idea. Um, and one of those eight is is about stimulating the subconscious. Yes. Um, and I, I call it great escape. And and so when you have fed your head, and I apologize, I'm going to make it work as a system because that's how it is. <laughs> I Remember, I've taken the stimulus. I've filled my head. I've talked to a lot of people. I've got a lot of thoughts that are all jumbled in my head. And when I'm really stuck for an idea... I just close my eyes and take some deep breaths. I've got some guided meditations that we'll oftentimes do, one called Island of Innocence, Truth, and Wisdom, where you tell the story to an innocent child, um, to a, uh, a truth, to a friend that knows you better than you know yourself, and to a wise one, an elder, a mentor in your life. And you just mentally tell the story. And by stopping like that, all of those pieces form themselves and I will immediately get an idea. It works every time. Wow. Now, th you have to trust this. Yeah. And so the problem most people have is they won't trust letting go. Mm. And so people will sit there and they're like, when I had the, a big pitch on the whiskey business, we were, I was down in Miami and we had a huge pitch in the room. You know, you're hearing the room and people are making pitches. And I've got, I'm pitching this company to invest and do different things. And I'm getting ready to go on. And I just closed my eyes and I just breathed and I just felt the room. And I walked up and just started talking. And and it's not as random as it looks because the mind had been prepared mm. with things. And but I had let my mind collect it together. When we built some of our forecasting models, um, it would drive the programmers who were very analytical, you know, doing their analytics. I would look at all the data and then I would step back. Or I would go for a, a run around the lake, or in the summer I would swim the lake in repetitive motion, be it cross-country skiing, cycling, anything repetitive like that evokes the same dimensions as meditation. Um, and I would come back from going around the lake and I'd say, here's how you do the model. And I would have visualized it in three dimensions on how to make it work, or in five dimensions sometimes. And, and they would go like, how the hell do you do that? I said, you guys have just got a left brain. you got to have a right brain too. Right. And you got to feed your right brain with those facts and then play with them. But we tend to be one or the other as opposed to both. I had a test run years ago 
for one of the jumpstart books and we thought it the publisher thought it'd be funny to have my brain wired up and see what oh, happens wow. when I create ideas. That's interesting. And so we go in and the lady wires up my head and my wife came because she's my high school sweetheart. We've been together forever. And uh, she said, I got to see this. I got to see this. So we get done and the lady says, your brain is odd. And of course, my wife, she said, well, I can tell you that. That <laughs> yeah. didn't require a doctor. To say that. <laughs> but um, she says, normally when we give people problems, like, say, the simple example, a math problem. Yeah. The left side of their brain lights up right. as they compute it. In your case, a microseconds, both sides light up. Mm. You're not only computing it, but you're visualizing the math program. And I've since had a number of other people who had an ability to basically hold both conversations in the head at the same time, the logical and the emotional at the same time. And you find it's not uncommon. And when you talk about the Edisons and when you talk about the Ben Franklins, that's Da Vinci's, that's what they did. Mm. They had both the technical knowledge to be able to do it, you know, as well as the vision of looking to the future as to what could be. Um, and so you can do that inside yourself or you can bring a group of people it's not as efficient because communication is slower. I can talk to myself very quickly. I can debate myself on the idea. Right. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Yeah. And 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 you'll see it. When I see people that can do that, I tell them, they'll say something, and everybody in the room's like, what the hell are you talking about? I said, slow down and tell me what you just thought. And I've taught a number of executives who are very gifted at it, very good at it, um, to slow down. And they go, well, you said this. She said this. That made me thought of P and then Q and then R, and then I got to this. And while they just went through all these iterative learning cycles, the rest of the room is like, where the hell did that come from? It looks like magic. It's not magic. It's not magic. It is not magic. Creativity is not magic. There is a method to it. Now, if I do that in my head, I do it quickly. If we have 10 people together, it's going to take longer because the speaking and listening and speaking and listening just takes, it's, you can, you, it works. It works. We, we know it works. It's just, you've got to give space to it. You can't do it in a 30 minute Zoom yeah. call. So do you think that some people are born more creative or more capable of idea generation? Or do you think anyone can learn to be as creative as the most creative people? There are people who have less fear. Mm, back to fear. And who are less concerned about what other people are thinking. Mm. And so they have an advantage if they use it. Now, sometimes they use it and they just become axe murderers because they just don't care. And that's not good. <laughs> but but, but the, um, the people who have less internal fear um, have an easier ability to go take their logical situation and go on flights of fancy with it and then come back and check it and then do it again. And when they fail, it's just one step along the way to get to where they want. Right. So they have an advantage. And there are people who are definitely wired more whole brain. Um, done a lot of work with Ann Herman. Um, and it is clear when we've put together groups and we balance the group to be a true whole brain, the, the productivity of useful big ideas, not just big ideas, but useful big ideas, 
goes way up. If I get a group of whole right brain people, I'll get a lot of ideas. But most of them are just bunkum. You just can't do anything. Right, right. Um, you need that tension in debate. And so when people say all ideas are good, don't say anything wrong, that's fine. But do you want to ship or not? Yeah. I mean, you got to confront. The, if you see any entrepreneurs, there's big battles and debates that go on because they care and they've got a cause to it. Yeah. So, yes, everybody can create. In some cases, it may be that they need to partner with someone because it's not their natural style at first. But if they do this for a while, they will develop it stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm. When we teach students on campus, I tell them half this class you're going to love and half you're going to hate because half of it's left brain, half of it's right brain. Right. But the part you hate is the most useful to you. <laughs> yeah, whichever side it is. So who are your heroes who where's your sources of inspiration come from throughout your lifetime two really are, are big and the first was something that my mom bless her she's passed now but she showed me a paper i'd written in elementary school on benjamin franklin okay who was author inventor um entrepreneur and like many I read his biography and was captivated by it. I now have his complete works actually sitting in the library here up above on the other side of the, where the phone is. And, um, and I just find him to be an original thinker. And, and so I get great inspiration from him. The other one is somebody that my father introduced me to, which is Dr. W. Edwards Deming. And this is the guy that went to Japan after World War II. He helped the Allies win the war through his quality efforts. The Japanese had poor quality. General MacArthur had him. And he basically reinvented Japan. Toyota, um, Sony, all the rest of the stuff. And he taught that 94% of the problem is the system, 6% is the worker. And that people are good, but the system is flawed. And so my entire life has become focused on, what did I talk about how we create ideas? You have to work the finance, the production. You got a system is independent parts that work together to accomplish a common aim. What's our whiskey? How do you make the custom work? You got all these parts. You got to solve the puzzle. And so this bringing together of looking at all of the components simultaneously and looking at it as a system, that you're trying to improve the system as opposed to playing the blame game on people has become my life's work. And whether it's whiskey, whether it's inventing ideas, whether, whether, whatever it is, is I look at things as a system. And Deming's work is stunning. It's stunning how powerful it is. And, but we tend to want to blame somebody right. for something. Right. And we want to beat people. And, and that just doesn't appear to be very effective. What about books? Any book that you would recommend to listeners? Well, um, Out of the Crisis by Deming, read it. Okay. And if you haven't read it, read it. And if you've read it, read it again. I'm going to read it. Um, it, it, is, it is an amazing um, it is an amazing book, and you'll look at it, and you'll say, my God, we haven't progressed as far as we thought we had. Right, um, right. And by far, it's amazing. I am also a big fan of, in a whole different world, Tom Peters. Um, and because he, when I was growing up, he was just starting out, and of course, he invented the whole marketing and innovation consulting world. I mean, he, he created right. it. And, and his work, especially the early work, and he's since become a good friend. Um, and true disclosure, he wrote the forward to my Jump Such a Business Brain book and, and we become good friends. But Tom 
had the ability to go to the leadership and say, boo, you know, wake up. You know, he, he didn't, he was, even though he came out of McKinsey, he was very much big on getting close to the work, big on um, diversity and making these teams come together, confronting realities. And so Tom's work has always been quite powerful for me. Um, and then there's Ned Herman of Whole Brain. The Whole Brain book is is just, if you want to understand Whole Brain, look at that. Um, it is it is truly amazing. And what about your books? Which is your, because you've written a few books now, haven't you? Which is your favorite book that you've written? The best-selling book is Jumpstart Your Business Brain, which is ironic in that half the book is about right brain and half the book is about left brain. So half the book is about creating ideas and the other half of the book is basically how to package them and sell them and pitch them. And that was named five times to the list of the 100 best business books of all time by CEO Reed. Um, and so that has a special place just because of that. From, from, from an emotional standpoint, my favorite is North Pole Tenderfoot, which is the story of me um, me being the tenderfoot, somebody who had no business going to the North Pole <laughs> on a genuine Arctic expedition. Yeah. And, um, and, and North Pole tenderfoot was just, um, it's just a very fun romp. It, there's no serious, this adultness to it. It's me trying to figure out systems for staying effing warm and figuring out how to cook and, and do things. And I was, there were people on the trip that had done Everest and all these things. I'm so low on the totem pole. I'm not even the cook. I'm the <laughs> pot, pot washer, which being a pot washer at 40 below zero is not, it's like as low in the totem pole as you can be. Yeah. So thank you so much for this. I've had an absolute riot. It's been fantastic. I know a lot of people are going to love this. Do you have any final parting words of wisdom, perhaps for those people just starting out early on in their careers in business? Well, to quote Ben Franklin, up sluggard and waste not life. In the grave will be sleeping enough. Deep inside all of us is a little voice, a little voice that tells us what we should do and what we must do. It's time to listen to that little voice. So what are you waiting for? Do something amazing. You just gave me tingles. Doug Hall, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All the very best. And I think lots of people are going to be reading some of your books soon. Well, and thank you, and and for just have uh, I love what you're doing. I love the take that you've got on this, and I might have done a few of these. Um, your understanding, and as I said, authenticity. I've been there, done that, as opposed to observed it, comes through. I appreciate that very much. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more. 